1 Samuel chapter 6, we see here that the Philistines got more than they bargained for. <laughs> uh, they ended up uh, stealing and taking away the Ark of the Covenant from the nation of Israel, from those fighting, they lost. They thought they could use the Ark of the Covenant as something like a good luck charm. Hey, if we have that around our neck, we have that or near next to us, we have this, then we're going to have victory. Uh, and they quickly found out they lost many uh, in that war, that fight with the Philistines. And, uh, and, they and the Philistines captured the covenant. But that became a, a weight around their neck. The burden of the ark was pretty heavy. Uh, and uh, they quickly found that out because if you remember as we studied, uh, they thought it was wise in their own mind to take the Ark of the Covenant and put it in the same room as their, uh, their God. And that, their God came tumbling down, not once, but uh, twice in the second time they broke. Uh, so that didn't, didn't do well. So they said, get it out of here. Take, take that art and get out of here. And so uh, they, we find here as we pick back up, what did they do with the ark after they've been trying to move it around? They finally said, let's give it back. And so 1 Samuel chapter 6, let's take the first six verses and uh, much to cover here. It says, now the ark of the, of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. So they had to deal with that burden for seven months. And they were, people were dying and getting tumors and they were getting sick and they were, God, it didn't matter what city they moved to, God made a mess of those people holding on to it. Finally, they got a clue after seven months and the Philistines called for the priests and the deviners, meaning the soothsayers, those fortune tellers, those <laughs> all those ones who say they're all powerful, right? Probably from the demonic force. But uh, they were saying, what do we do here? What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, <clears throat> but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, What is the trespass offering which we, should, we shall return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors. That's, that's a wonderful gift. And five golden rats is getting better. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines. Right? Five Philistines ruled over those five major cities, and this is the people who came against and wiped, uh, was <laughs> wiping out uh, Israel because they were not walking with the Lord. These Philistines, you know, they didn't even know how bad it was going to be. They, was like, they just knew they were going to be persistent and consistent, and they said, we're going to buckle down, and we're going to go against Israel, even though the Ark of the Covenant showed up. And I, we know what that means. It doesn't matter. We're still going to, we're just going to go to war with these people. They didn't realize the Israelites were not even walking with God. Even with the fact that they brought the Ark of the Covenant didn't mean God was in it. And they found out quickly uh, that God wasn't in it for the Israelites, and they lost. So here they are. They're going to give back these five tumors, golden tumors and five golden rats, uh, to the Philistines, from the Philistines to this, this, this trespass, this offering to God for peace. Please stop allowing us to get these tumors and getting sick. Let us get healed. For the same plague was on all of you and on, on, on your lords. Therefore, So everyone was affected in the Philistines. Therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will listen, or he will lighten his hand. Lighten means lift that burden off of them. Lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Oh, they're giving them a history lesson. Don't harden your hearts here like the Egyptians and Pharaoh. You saw how that played out. Why would you harden against God as God keeps bringing the heavy burden down on you and put the hand there in weakened form, in this case, tumors and sickness and rads and all kinds of things? At what point are you going to get a clue that you're going against God? 
That's what his own soothsayers, that's his own deviners, their own, their own wicked priests are telling him, do, do you not learn from other people's lessons when they go against God? When he, had, when he did mighty things among them, you know, the plagues, all the plagues, don't you, don't you see the linkage here? Did they not let the people go that they might depart? Do you see what happens when they finally said, okay, go, leave, get out of Egypt? This is get the ark of the, this ark of God out of here with the trespasses, with this golden stuff to him, just show and appease, and so he'll he'll let you go. So the Philistines certainly first captured that Ark of the Covenant, and they thought this was great victory. They thought they knew what they were doing, and they were all powerful in their minds. Their pride was like, wow, look at how powerful we are. We even beat the Israelites and the God of Israelites, and we got the actual Ark of the Covenant here. But once they found out they thought they had great victory, only as a matter of time that that victory turned into a tremendous burden. It wasn't a trophy. It was a burden that came upon them. And why did they keep it for seven months in the first place? Why would they even keep the seven months here? Because they were reluctant to give up such a wonderful trophy. They thought this was victory, great victory. This is something they could put on their mantle and figure a speech and proud it around. Look at us. Look at us. Look at what we've achieved. Look at what we've achieved. We're, we're powerful. We're good. We're, all these things that can get into a, mind's man, a man's mind. But that burden turned into a, nothing but a futility of resisting of God. <laughs> That's all that was. That burden was just so much resistance against God that the burden was so heavy that now they're feeling the weight of it. And so by all means, return it to, with a trespass offering. So they turned to the priests and said, what do you think we should offer their priests, their gods? What do we do here to help express our sorrow, our repentance and change of mind? We don't want this burden up. We don't want this ark anymore. Get it out of here. We repent. We are changing our mind. We don't want to keep it. It's not victory. It's nothing but bad for us. Get it out of here. Get it out of our life. And they chose the five golden tumors and the five golden rats. Now we know the plague involved tumors, right? We saw that in chapter 5, verse 6, and verse 9, and verse 12. But what about these rats? There's nowhere in 1 Samuel 5 talked about the plague involving rats. Some think the tumors were the result of the bubonic plague, which is carried by rats. Others think that the rats were part of another plague or calamity mentioned in verse 11 in that broad term. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. So however it is, but they were part of it. Somehow, someway, God used even rats in bringing a tremendous weight or the burden upon them. Now you shall give glory to God of Israel. These priests were, and these, the demoniers were saying, you've got to give glory to God of Israel. Acknowledge God's judgment, that this is judgment upon us for taking the Ark of the Covenant. And one way to give glory to God of Israel is, is to acknowledge that you're wrong. Acknowledge this is sin, this is wrong, this is not good, that you should have never done this. And we often fail to give God this glory because we ignore his judgment, the weight of the burden that comes upon us. Many people will turn and say, oh, that's just bad luck. Eh, you know, just a you know, situation, just bad luck. I'm just having a series of bad lucks. No, no, it's not a bad luck. It could be the fact that there's a burden placed upon you because you are not walking with God. There's a heaviness there. There's something not right. You don't have the peace. Certainly things coming in your life, they do. Why? This is, this is not normal. This is not normal. This is, this is very weird. So, like, so those who are not walking with God will just kind of pass it off. But for those of us who know of the Lord, we look at everything. Anything that comes in our life that's changed, that it's a, we learn that God has got something good through all this somehow, some way. There's something that God's getting our attention, and we seek our, our minds and our hearts like, Lord, are you trying to get my attention? Lord, are you trying to get me to move? Are you shaking the nest a little bit to get me to move and change in some way and so forth? So we look at it as a good thing as God is in control of our lives. Nothing touches our life unless it's been Father filtered, and he has allowed it. So if even if it's Satan coming after us, God has allowed it to wait to bring glory to him, to bring glory in the fact that through our lives, how God is going to bring us and sustain us through, the, through those things. 
But for those who don't know God and they're not walking with God and they're walked away from God, oh, watch out. These things you better take note of. Because he said, they said, you need to glorify him. Why? Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you. But interesting is they could have repented, not only the fact that they need to give the Ark of the Covenant back, they could have repented and said, we're going to worship the God of Israel and him alone. No, no, he didn't. They did not turn. He says, lighten your hand from you, from your gods and from your land. Meaning, they, they didn't worship God Almighty any longer. Instead, they, they still worshiped their gods, but they were also kind of mixing them in with it or at least giving acknowledge of the fact that he was a powerful God. And then, of course, the warning is don't harden your heart. Verse 7, now therefore, make a new cart. Oh, so now they've come up with the solution of how they're going to get rid of the cart here. So they said, therefore, make a new cart. Take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart. And take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart. And put the articles of gold, which are which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go and watch. And if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. So, They've come up with this thing, we've got to get it out of here, but they still haven't really, really sold out on the fact that this was God. Why? Because you see their plan of action here. They're throwing out to test God to see if this was really God doing that brought all these, this calamity upon their lives. So they're testing it to really think, okay, that's why you didn't see complete worship of, that, of, of the, the God of Israel, because they still weren't willing to fully believe. They were right on the fence line here. So they're testing God here in a way, because they know, is this really a burden really from God, or is it just me thinking crazy, and it's been a bad day, the weather's not good, and you know, it's a bad season of life, and you know, I ate some really, some, some you know, peppers that just didn't settle with me here. No, no. They were sending things out here in a way by doing something that was a test. By doing what? Getting two milk cows that have never been yoked. And if you've been around, Stan will tell you, if you take a, an animal and you try to yoke it and put something on it, they're going to fight it all. They're not, gonna, they're, not, they're not designed milk cows to be yoked together to plow kind of a thing. That's not the design here. Also, they said, let's take the calves, their brand new calves that they wouldn't, the mother would never leave their calves. And they took the calves and put them up going the opposite direction. The instinct, the in nature of that animal be what? To go find the calf, to go and take care of the calf, not go away from the calf. So there's, again, they're testing. These are natural things that they can lean on their own understanding and say, this could never happen. If this is of God and this happens the way it's being planned, we know it's God. If it doesn't and they, they start wrestling and they start tearing back to go get their calves, you know that's not of God. This was just chance that how this has all been planned out. So but they also notice here, they put the articles of that gold, those, those gold items, those five pieces of each there, and they were wise enough, notice here, they didn't put it in the Ark of the Covenant, they set it on the side. They were, there was something that they said, well, we probably shouldn't open up that lid and pick that up. Probably we should, would not touch this thing. Let's just, let's let handle it the better. And sure enough, let's put them in the place and let's let them go. And there's not going to be anyone leading them. There's no one going to drive them. We're just going to let them go and see what happens. And sure enough, what happens? They went, started heading toward Beth Shemesh. Right? Look, look, look what happens here. In verse 10, then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the car and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the, of the Lord on the car and the chest with the gold rats and the images of the, their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road of Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing 
as they went and did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Semesh. Where were you following them? Making sure they got to the, to the border and nothing changed? They would, let's make sure they're out of the territory to make sure it. But they were just watching. They were like, a, went after them. They, these cows started moving. Notice they didn't have any reluctancy. God was directing the steps of these cows. They weren't turning to the left or to the right. Why? Because they weren't taking the time to go eat grass and come over here like cows do and eat grass here and come over here and eat grass here. And Oh, that looks good. Let's go over here. and do No. Focus. God kept those two cows so focused and drawn directly that there was no question in the Philistines' minds, no question that this was of God directing those steps of those cows, which meant he directed those tumors, I mean, all the sickness and the tumors and all the challenges that came upon them because they had the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, remember, they had to put it on a cart because it was designed, if you remember, as we studied back in certainly in numbers and stuff, they were not ever to carry the Ark of the Covenant. Those were designed with rings with a pole. It was a wooden pole with gold, uh, gold wrapped around those poles. They went through the rings, and only the Levites, the priests, could pick them up by the poles. You never touch the Ark of the Covenant. So, but remember, God wasn't hovering over that Ark of the Covenant. He, he, he let go of it. Plus, it also teaches you this. Non-believers literally had a point in their life right that non-believers didn't understand what they were dealing with and what they were doing. God showed them mercy by not taking them out because of how they were handling the Ark of the Covenant. They were not handling it at all according to God's word whatsoever. They were not doing it properly, but God knew because of their their uh, their their stupidity, <laughs> the lack of what their understanding of what to do with this, because they weren't given the law. They were not, they were Israelites. They, they were just trying to think they could just take this. It was just a piece of furniture. Who cares? And somehow it's a God, it's a symbol for God. We have lots of symbols and, and idle things everywhere. It was just an idol to them. They didn't know God's presence was hovering above this, 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 this box. But when they touched it and moved it and put it on a car, and move that, let that cart move, and took it to a place where they're not even supposed to be taking it. In this case, right to Beth, Beth uh, Shemesh, we find here as those cows went down that road, there was no question in their mind that God was a full out control and God's glory had, there was nothing you could do. There was full glorifying God of what he just did in that situation. And certainly the, the Israelites and the Philistines certainly both have resisted God. But you can see here the Philistines were coming to somewhat in their right minds. We better do something. Now when you see that term in this verses here we read lowing as they went. That means that as these two cows were going they were wailing. They were moaning and groaning and crying for their calves, but that did not stop them to continue to move forward. This means that they were especially not happy. These two cows were very not happy, but they were still, again, God was directing, intensely longing uh, to go right straight forward, even though they were miserable, they didn't know where the calves are, and, and this was not natural for them to be yoked together and pulling this, this cart. None of this was natural. But for those who, you know, it, it caused, like, I would say, when people don't believe there is a loving God who sits in the enthronement in, in heaven. And, uh, and doesn't understand that God has a good plan for our lives. If you don't have that as a basis or a structure as a Christian, you're going to have some difficult times. As a non-Christian, you're not going to have that understanding that God is in control and that he has a, a foundation, a beautiful plan for your life. You're going to understand that. So if you don't have God, you won't understand it. If you have God, but you still don't have that foundation settled that God's in control of life, then you can't help but blame everything and anything around and be afraid and being proud and being miserable in your life. 
A Christian who is not understanding God's in control of their life and everything that happens in your life is God is still in control and there's a purpose and plan of it. You're 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 miserable because it, it prides in the way or your your fears in the way. You you don't understand God at a level and in an intimacy and in a level of understanding for you to just rest in the fact that yes, this is calamity. Yes, this is destruction and loss. But God is still in control and has a purpose for. And that even through this trial, joy can still lift you up. His joy can be your strength, the Bible says. But for those who believe in the God of the Bible, there really is no excuse for fear or pride or misery. Because God is still on the throne, his throne. And as we go through this world, and as we wait for his return and take us home with great anticipation every day, let us believe that the movement of all the things is toward the accomplishment of God's purpose in our lives. I love Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. That you need to hold on to that scripture. Verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvests in the valley. And they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there and a large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it in which were the articles of gold and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made it sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So they were rejoicing. The Israelites were like, yes, we got the Ark of the Covenant back. This is great. And it's in our place. This is wonderful. This is super. But interesting, they did the right thing. They felt something, you know, must have been like, like the disciples felt on the day, you know, when they saw Jesus resurrected. It was like, wow, there's life now. There's a hope for us here. This is good. This is right. The Ark of the Covenant is back. But because they've received God back to them from the dead kind of a feeling, only the fact that they, on this day, they were reaping their heart, wheat harvest, which would have been between May and June time frame when they were doing this. So you have a, tent, a time frame when, when that would have happened. But they were, knew that God of Israel was alive. It's like they knew he was alive. No, the Ark of the Covenant is not what makes us know that God is alive. But they were treating the article almost as at that idol, that, that, that very thing. But it's really worshiping God. God is in the throne. God is in control. It's not, he's not restricted to just the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, God was never dead and it never left them. But then their minds, because that article, that, that furniture is back, Israel felt like as God was from dead and now back alive. But, but he was always alive. They were desperate, remember? They were discouraged. They were hopeless at this point, right? They had lost the war. They lost many people. They lost the Ark of the Covenant. They, lost, they thought we lost God. God's dead. God's not with us. I mean, this was hopeless times for these people. Why? Because they were going based on their feelings. They were thinking based on their feelings. And it left them to this point of fear and misery and all kinds of, of challenges in their life because they didn't understand that the God they worship is alive. We too, that's why we know. We worship a God who's a what? Alive. We don't worship a dead God. We don't worship some piece of furniture item that represents God? No, we worship the living God. Now think about this. God literally took these two cows, went against their nature in many respects, with no guy, no nothing, and directed them for 10 miles to go to Beth Shemesh. This wasn't a little, let's go over the mountain now, just, oh, interesting, it's just gone over the mountain. 10 miles with no distraction, no turning to the left or to the right. 
And when they arrived at the destination, they stopped. The Israelites there. They sat there and they went, wow, this is amazing. He's, we've got the ark back. But it's interesting. They took the ark off. They took the wood. They split the wood of the wooden cart in half. Offered the cows as burnt offerings. They were worshiping God. They knew what was the right thing to do to honor God at this moment. Yet it really cost them something, right? Because these were cows were not cheap. The cart was not cheap. The, the property that they could have used. No, they were worshiping God. It didn't matter what the value of those items. They worshiped God because God is now back. They figured they finally were saved here. They're finally getting to have hope and promise here. But they didn't do it the right way, did they? Because if they know the Mosaic law, they didn't do it the right way. Because in a strict sense, they didn't go against it. They went against the Mosaic law. Why? First, they offered female animals. You could only offer male animals in sacrifices. But they did two female cows. Female cows were forbidden to be offered. We see that in Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 3 in chapter 22, verse 19. Second, they made a burnt offering to the Lord away from the tabernacle. Remember, the sacrifices were only supposed to be done at the tabernacle. They weren't at the tabernacle. We found that in violating that command in Deuteronomy 12, verses 5 and 6. But God still knew these people's hearts. He knew their, their understandings of what was happening and the, and the remarkable circumstances. And then he was no doubt honored by their means of trying to show honor to God and the fact that the Ark of the Covenant is back. This Beth Shemesh was a city full of Levites. So the Levites were the proper ones at least dealing and handling the Ark. And they were very careful to handle the ark, of course, because they, it was commanded by the law in Numbers 4 that Beth Shemesh was this, this priestly city. It was that's why God probably directed it there. We see that the fact that priests handled that properly to take it off and to do that. So God sees those things. But look at verse 16. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they were right at the border, they said, Oh, home base. <laughs> they crossed the border. They're on their side. We're free. We're done. It's gone. No, no. They ran back to tell everyone, did they not? There was no phone call made. There was no, they had to go back 10 miles. And you can imagine what the people were waiting for. But they saw it with their own eyes that they crossed over into Beth Shemesh. They saw the fact that they were, they, they were rid of this, the ark. And they returned to Elkron the same day. And these are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod and one for Gaza and one for Ashkelon and one for Gath and one for, for Ekron. And the, old, the golden rats according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords. Both fortified cities in the country, villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they sat the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day to the field of Joshua in Beth Shemesh. So we see here that when the five lords of the Philistines saw this taking place and finally got rid of the burden and, and sent it off, they were wondering, and all that had happened to them, well, they had the ark... Was it by accident? No, it wasn't by accident anymore. We understand that they set up the elaborate and different tests to test God to see if it was God in this or not. It made it very clear God was in this and why they were dealing with what they were doing. And they personally observed to see if God would indeed meet the test. And of course, God, of course, is not going to be, you can't test God. God is in control. He's, he's orchestrating all these steps. And, they, and the reaction is recorded right here in these verses, how they, how they were pursued to watch. And then all of a sudden they said, let's go back and let's tell everybody what we saw. Verse 19, then he struck, God struck the men of Beth Shemesh. What? God struck the Israelites? In Beth Shemesh? Why? Because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Wait, wait, wait. The Philistines had enough common sense not to look under the hood? 
And you didn't? And you're priests? Now, I read that, and I went, okay, Lord. They're priests. Did they think the Philistines took out the articles that were in the Ark of the Covenant? Did they get a hold of the two stone tablets? The rod of Aaron? The little pot of manna? Did they take this out? What? So I kind of looked there. But regardless, God didn't like it. Why? He struck 50,070 men of the people. The original language means, that phrase right there means, he out of the 50,000 that were there, 70 men of the, those men were struck. So those 70 men, I'm assuming, were somehow involved in opening the Ark of the Covenant and were around there because they got struck. And the people lamented. They wailed. They were, they, that was, they were because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. We don't know how he slaughtered them, but he slaughtered them. Why? Because they took the cover off the Ark of the Covenant. It didn't matter what the reason. They weren't supposed to touch it. They were not supposed to touch it. It didn't matter. You can't rationalize this. And God didn't hold back, it appears. It was immediate. As soon as they touched and handled those specific, those Levites and from the, from the family of Korath, because they were the only ones that could touch it, that were commanded back in Numbers 4.15, those men of Beth Shemesh sinned by not only touching the ark, but also looking into it inappropriately. They were not to touch it. And they knew better. See, he didn't wipe out the Philistines touching it because they didn't know better. But the Levites knew better. And there are greater consequences when you know better and you do it anyway. There's greater consequences. God holds us more responsible because we know. They sure did. And because of the honor and glory, God, there are things which we choose to keep hidden. Right? What he says, because they looked into the ark of God. There are things that were to choose, he says, keep them hidden. And it was wrong for the men to pry into these secrets of God and, and to move in and try to figure out what's going on. God is very clear in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my, your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We have to understand, there are times people will sit there, I have the secrets of God, let me share the secrets of God. Come follow my, 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 my ministry. I've got to share secrets to me. I met with him in upper rooms, and all the here and there, and... You start hearing that crazy stuff, don't even go near that. Don't even, just don't even get entertained to click on it because that's what they're trying to get you to do, to click on it so that you're bombarded with this kinds of stuff. Don't touch these hidden things. God has given us his word. That's all we need. But 70 men wiped out, slaughtered, because they, they chose to do something they knew they weren't supposed to do. Verse 20. We see this. this they, they're not happy there in Beth Shemesh. I mean, they're wailing. They're, they're not, so what do they do? And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? It's almost like God is way too good. Who can even stand this and be in front of it? It's not, this, is, this is not a good question from my perspective. Have I studied it? Not a good question. You can see the response of God. Why they didn't, they weren't projecting this question in a positive way or inquisitive way. Look at what happened. And to whom shall it go up from us? Meaning, get this thing away from us. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kerjeth Jerem, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Wait a minute. If you got slaughtered and you got met, and you said, Who can stand in front of a holy God? He's just too perfect. I, who, can, who can be this Christian? Who can be a Christian? I, who can be good enough and be a Christian and, 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 and God be happy with you? It's that kind of mentality. And you think it's okay to go to your brothers in another town and say, why don't you take it? Did they think they were more holier than they? That they were more following the commands of God than they were? 
Or did they really not like those guys in the other town and they thought, why don't you get slaughtered? I don't know which side it is, but we find out that these dudes come down and actually get it and take it back. I don't know what motivated them to call their brothers in Kirjath-Jerim. But notice here that these guys in Beth Shemesh, they knew God, the Lord was holy. But they offended the holiness of the Lord. And instead of taking responsibility, instead of repenting, instead of realizing we didn't, we went, we're wrong, and this is the penalty, this is the judgment of God because we went against God here and we knew it. No, none of that. They just sit there and said, Who can be who can really walk this, this life? Who's, who, who, who can walk this life? See, the primary idea behind this holiness is not about being moral purity, being perfect. It's not, that's not what it is. There's a, who's, who could be perfect to handle this? No, he's not talking about moral purity here. He's talking about the idea of apartness. Apartness is that God is a separate and distinct from his creation. He has essential natures, his perfection of his attributes. You cannot be God. He's a holy God, and we must honor and glorify him as a, a, a holy God. He's an apartness from us. And so when men encounter the holiness of God, they're not necessarily attracted to the holiness of God. It is so perfect and so bright, you can, a man cannot handle it. And you don't just go running after that. You actually are, you step back from that. We see that clearly in the scripture. Do you remember Peter when he first saw Jesus, the holy power of Jesus, the presence of Jesus? He says, depart from me for I am a sinner, of a sinful man, O Lord. Remember that in Luke 8, 5, 8? He said, he was in the presence of God, the holiness. And he says, depart from me. I'm a wicked sinner. How about, how about when they were at the Mount of Transfiguration? This is after three years of spending time with Jesus. The Mount of Transfiguration, he stayed witness to his, his perfection and rising. What happened in Matthew 17, 6? Right there when that shining forth of the Transfiguration, they were all greatly afraid. The holiness made him them very afraid. So that's why people say, oh, I'm going to the holiness of God and I'm going to bolt. Be very careful. Because if you really understood the scripture, you realize you and I would be just absolutely fall down dead because of the holiness and the perfection in front of us. See, I find that many people today who are thrill-seeking pleasures, are always looking for thrill-seeking pleasures in this modern world that has all the things and really the, the thrills and... and are simply weak. They're weak within because their attempts to imitate this, this fulfillment of, of this meeting a holy God and a meeting a holy, just to try to fill something that's missing. There are always people are living thrill-seeking because they're trying to fill, trying to get something that only a holy God can do. But they ask, who, 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 they ask the question, who is able to stand before the Holy God, the Holy Lord God? They had bad hearts. Their hearts were not right, asking this question. They said, this is a harsh God. Who can even begin to, to walk and be near this God? That's what they were saying. They didn't understand God's mercy and love or holiness. Or obedience. All they could see is this, this harsh God. No, you are disobedient. <laughs> the consequence is because of your disobedience. That's what you should have been crying out. See, holiness is not about achieving through your own efforts. But it is receiving 
as a new man, as a new woman in Christ. It's receiving what God has for that. Holiness is part of the new man, the new woman. We are in Jesus. We see that in Ephesians 4.24. And because of the new position we're in and brought in and adopted in the family of God, we are now invited to be partakers or sharers of Jesus' holiness, Hebrews 12.10. He shares. Though God is apart from us, though, though he, he is holy, instead of building a wall around his apartness and not allowing anyone to get of a closeness, God calls us to come to him and share in his apartness. We see that in 1 Peter 1.16. Be holy, for I am holy. Holiness is something That has us. God has a hold of us. So we find Beth, these men of Beth Shemesh said, No, 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 get it up to Kirjath Jerem and put the burden on them. Let them take responsibility for this ark. We can't handle this. This, is, this, this God is too, too, too harsh for us. Let's get him up there and let's give it. And we find that once it gets up to Kirjath Jerem and they come and get it and take it up there, it actually stays there in that location for a good time, for many years until King David brought it to the city of Jerusalem. We see, we'll see that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, we see, Then the men of Kirjath Jerem came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of uh, Abinadab on the hill and consecrated uh, Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. Okay, you got Eliezer, you got a big job ahead of you. That's really nice, son. I got a, I got a job for you. <laughs> Do you remember? They just wiped out 70. Okay, son, you're up to it. We're going to consecrate you here. <laughs> Ooh. So it was that the ark remained in Kerjeth Jerem a long time. It was there for how many years? 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So we see they treated the Ark of the Covenant with respect. These, these, these new men, these Kirjath Jerem, they did not disrespect God. They treated it with respect. They did it not, they did it, did not take it to the to the tabernacle. Instead, they rested it at the house of uh, you know, instead of the house of God, they took it to the house of Abinadab here. And he then we see here Abinadab consecrated Eliezer. I don't know if Eliezer was a Levite or not, but he, it appears that he must have had a lineage of somewhere to be able to be consecrated to take care of and consecration of the ceremonies, the legitimacy around that that's outlined in Levitic, uh, Exodus 29. But somehow this was appropriate and good and right because for a long time, 20 years, God allowed that Ark of the Covenant to be there at that place and not in the tabernacle. But they also, we see at the very end, that the Israel had lamented after the Lord because they had good reason to lament. These cities, of their, they were those cities that they were dwelling in were at ruins. Remember, the Philistines had dominated them and then ruined it. And they were just, their lives were really messed up here. And the lamenting and the wailing and the loss of life and everything was going on. The burden of not being right with God was being felt by the people of Israel. The burden was tremendous because they weren't obedient and right with God. And they're doing things and going against and, and, and God allowing the Philistines to dominate them and all these things because they were not right with God. They needed to be humbled and they certainly were humbled. Verse 3 and 4, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, Here's, Here comes Samuel, he's, he's, God is using as the prophet, as the judge, we will see that. And saying, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths and among, from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the, the Baals and the Ashtaroths and serve the Lord only. So, so here's an interesting thing. As you read through this, you're like, Samuel, where were you? 
<laughs> Back in chapter 4, you, that was the last time we've ever hear from you, Samuel, until just now. So what happened during this really weird time with the Ark of the Covenant going to war, getting taken by the Philistines, and then all these years being... And now you're showing back up here and you're talking to the people of Israel, the house of Israel, the people there and says, hey, the reason why you're lamenting, why you're having such a burden, there's no peace in your life. There's all this stuff going on. And it, God uses Samuel to speak to all of Israel. If you will return, if you will repent, if you will come and change your hearts and put away all that stuff junk of the world and put it away get rid of the foreign gods get rid of those worshiping these 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 female goddesses and male goddesses and all the things that they represent these foreign gods get rid of them turn away from them and only prepare your heart to worship god and god alone if you do that then the burden will be lifted god will be for you not against you here You have to have an inward repentance, a change of heart inwardly and outwardly. Look what he says. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, that's an inward change. Then put away the foreign gods and asteros among you. Now an outward change should result by you getting rid of things that go against God and that doesn't represent God. It's not good for you. It's not right for you. Get it out. That's, you know, that's, a, that's when you know you have true repentance internally. The external things change. And then look what the third thing is. Then you will prepare your hearts to just worship God, to worship Him with all your heart, and serve Him only. That's the someone who's really truly repented. If people are just serving, doesn't mean they had to change their heart internally. And not taking and getting rid of things that are not that's not honoring God. It doesn't please God. They're not getting that in their life. But they say they're just right with God and no problem. They're and working with you know they're they're you just don't know my heart. God knows my heart. Okay, great. God knows your heart. I agree with it because we don't see the inward change. But I'm looking what you're doing and saying and on the outward, and I'm telling you that doesn't line up with the inward. I know what the Word of God says. Your life doesn't reflect worshiping God. Your life doesn't, you're not serving Him. So all these things externally that I can see does not line up with what should be in line with if you really truly had an inward change of heart. Yes, this inward repentance is a secret thing. It is hidden. No one can see the heart of any, another person. Yet the inward will prove by the outward. It will prove the outward, the Bible says. So he says, you make this change, you start serving only him. Obedience to him. Put away all these other false gods. Watch to see what God's going to do. In verse 5, look what happened. Samuel said, gather all Israel of Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Ah, Samuel's interceding for the people. And so they gathered together in Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. So they got... Use Samuel to gather the people, to speak truth to them. You've got to change if you want God to be in, this, in your life and doing the things in your life and lifting those burdens and th things. This is a very important place in Mizpah, right? Because if you go back and do a word search in Mizpah, you see this is where Jacob separated from Laban in Genesis 31, 49. Separated there. This place is known for separation and repentance here in Mizpah. But notice what he says. Samuel says, you come together at Mizpah, draw the water, pour it out before the Lord. That pouring out, that drawing of the water, that pouring it out before the Lord is in context is a ceremonial pouring out of that water demonstrated the soul poured out before the Lord. It was an expression of emptiness, expression of need for God. And they pray, they talk with, they commune with God, they talk with God. Then they, 
called the nation to repentance. And you need to call and you need to repent as a nation, as individuals. You need to repent. Show your spiritual need for God. Expressing that you're, you're, you're the change of heart, the, the conviction. And it's demonstrated. Our response to conviction is the demonstrates of repentance. I don't feel convicted at all. Yeah, but I've repented. Again, the experience of conviction of sin proves nothing. It is our response to conviction, that repentance, that demonstrates repentance is what's important. But they did. They, they poured out... They prayed, they repented, they gathered, they fasted a day. They, they, we have, they've confessed with their own tongue. I, we've sinned against, with, against the Lord. I mean, they're sorrowful. The fasting is a message that says, I, 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 I die of self here. Nothing matters at all. Not food, not nothing. I, rep I fast because I need to get right with God. I need, I want nothing. Nothing else matters to me right now but my relationship with God. That's what fasting is. And confession is that simple, honest, simple, straightforward claim of guilt and responsibilities. You take full responsibility for a life that goes against God. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10 through 10 makes it clear that confession is vital to maintain relationship with God. As God convicts us, our sins that are hindering our fellowship with Him. And if our, fellowship, if our sin is hindering our fellowship with Him, it's going to hinder, hinder our fellowship with our fellow man and woman. And we must confess it. We must receive forgiveness and cleansing from our, for our, our relationship with God. To have that, that hindrance removed, that burden removed, to be able to come boldly with God. We have to repent. It means we come, it's coming from the heart. The greater statement of confession is we have sinned against the Lord. It's not elaborate. It's not complex. It's just literally acknowledging we have sinned against the Lord. Samuel said, in, in judging the children of Israel, he said, I mean, he's the last judge. Remember, Samuel's the last judge here before we go into the kings. But he's sitting here. This is what you need to do. I'm not a military guy trying to lead you as a judge. I'm a, literally a spiritual uh, the military to lead you, not into go into war, but to come to a spiritual, uh, you know, spiritual warfare to finally come to a point in your life that you just surrender to God. Verse 7. Now when the, Phil the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. What? Philistines, what are you doing here? I mean, they had it right. The Philistines were definitely afraid because they're starting to gather together. It looked like they were getting their act together. They're no longer division. They're looking like they're, they're moving in a direction. They're getting strength. They look like they're getting unity here. And now the enemy, when you start seeing unity happening among the brothers and sisters, then the enemy tries to come in and divide. And sure enough, God, the enemy's going to use the Philistines to try to divide and conquer and split up the people. It looks like they're coming together. Now they're focusing on God. They're repenting. There's change going on here. And sure enough, when they heard that this was happening, there seemed to be unity. They're coming back together. The Lord said, hey, we've got to get, break that back up. We're afraid. They're going to have the power of God again. These people are down there weeping and crying. Look at how weak they are. They're, look at how messed they are. They're just, they're just wailing and everything. This is a time to strike. They seem to be weak. Well, they had no clue. That weakness, that humbleness was actually the strength of God that's going to fill them up and take care of them. 
You know, sometimes our feelings of confidence can deceive us. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 5, Israel was completely confident against the Philistines. Why? Because they, they thought they were confident because they had the Ark of the Covenant. And they got defeated. Here, Israel, complete opposite. They're fearful and sure of defeat. They're, they're, they're afraid of the Philistines. The Philistines are, seem to have all the, the weight. They've, they've already been beaten up by the Philistines and killed by the So they had all kinds of fear running through their minds because they were, their feelings were overwhelming them of the past experience here. No confidence to deal with the, the enemy anymore. And no, seem to have no more faith, no more trust and in, 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 fortunately, they had no more trust and no more thought of turning to the ark. They were just literally turning to God now. They're not turning to furniture. They're turning to actually God himself. And because of that, because of that state, that repentant state, and really focusing in on God and not the things of God, we find that this is where their strength will come from and will be very powerful. And what the Philistines didn't understand is they didn't understand because they couldn't understand because they were not of God. But the small faith in the true and living God is more powerful than a strong faith in a lie. And so what happens, verse 8 and 9, So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And the Lord answered him. Samuel took the time to intercede, took the time to sacrifice in this critical time, in the critical moment of effectively praying and asking God and God and atoning for the sacrifice there and hear God's answers, their prayer. God showed up. And we too as a Christian just like they took that suckling lamb, that poor little lamb who never hurt anyone, who never sinned itself, yet its throat was slit and its blood poured out. When we trust the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we're saying the same thing. We're trusting in the perfect sacrifice for our sins and the Lord answered him and the Lord answers us the Lord went into battle for them the Lord will battle for us the Bible speaks of Samuel as a mighty man of prayer in Psalm 99.6 Samuel was among those who called upon his name they called upon the Lord and he answered them Verse 10, now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to the battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shane, and called its name Ebenezer, saying, This far the Lord has helped us. So it's interesting here, God fought the, the fight, not having to get them involved at all. He just brought his natural thunder that caused such confusion, such like that must have been terror. If you had the thunder and lightning the other day, it, it rocked. Did you, did you feel the house? and everything? It, That place rocked around here. And it's like when you didn't matter if you lived outside of water or inside of water, everyone felt like the, it was sitting right over you when it, it rocked. Can you imagine how much greater that must have been? That brought confusion. Didn't bring confusion to the Israelites. Israelites knew exactly what was happening. And then he went tearing against them. And won the battle because Jesus, or God won the battle. They didn't even have to touch them. They just kind of pursued them. But really, God was doing the work. He gave confusion to the Philistines, but confidence to Israel. 
See, that's what happens when things, when God is bringing things. We will have confidence because we know what God's doing. But the people who are not with God, who are not walking with God, will be confused and there'll be all kinds of panicking and afraid because they don't know what's happening. But for us, we will have, we will not be confused. We will have confidence. And I am so thankful that God gives us confidence when everyone else is in chaos around us in this world. But Samuel knew the Lord did a great work. That's why he said, I recognize, Lord, we recognize, look, the great work you did. But notice his words at the very end of verse 12. Thus far the Lord has helped us. Meaning, we need the Lord continually going forward. Just because he's helped us here doesn't mean we go back to our own ways and our own thinking. We need to pursue because after every single enemy coming after us daily, we have to have God's help. We must have God's help. Verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. Oh, that was a rocking, shaking moment of that thunder. That never left their minds. We're never going back into their territory again. That, that, I mean, that's incredible, right? And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Meaning God hadn't given up on them. You may not be coming to the territory, but I'm still, going to, I'm still going to take care of you guys. I'm going to do all the way through the time of Samuel here, he says. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. So things here, God is getting in order. He says, I'm going to deal with you to the very end here. We're going to restore all these, these cities you took from my people. This is my people's land. And he gave peace between them and another enemy, the Amorites. So there was even the Amorites still there. There was a peace where there was no, there was no war and conflict here during this period of time. And uh, again, it wasn't like Samuel was some military genius that made this all happen. No, no, no. He was a man who trusted, trusted God in, in interceding. And he was better than any generals that, uh, that went out there and fought with, uh, with, with them. They lost. But for Samuel, he went right to the Lord. And the Lord is the one that went into battle because he's the great warrior here. He wasn't a man of war, he was a man of peace. And God used him in the life of the people of Israel. In verse 15 through 17, we'll close here of chapter 7. It says, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit. Ah, so here's a circuit rider going around teaching from circuit around place to place here. Uh, from year to year on a circuit to Bethel. Uh, Gilgal and Mizpah and judged Israel in all those places but he always returned to Ramah for his home was there there he judged Israel and there he built an altar to the Lord so Samuel was used by God for many years here all of his days uh, some judges ended their ministry early why because of disgrace because they didn't do it God's way but not not Samuel God uh, God he finished well his ministry. He finished well. And he did it hard because he had to travel to go around and judge rightly for God's people. And that was a, uh, he was a circuit rider there as a judge. He went from town to town. But Samuel worked hard in his service for the Lord. All the way through into the older age, he was still working hard for God. He didn't break, he didn't let off because he was being faithful to what God called him to do. Every year, Samuel would work hard to go all about Israel and settle all the disputes and promote righteousness and the things of God and rightly and then go back and rest until the Lord said, okay, it's time for you to go on the circuit again and see the people and see what's going on. But Samuel remained faithful. Faithful to the Lord. Worshiping him. Where you see here the altar was a place of sacrifice and worship. He, Samuel was a constant relationship with the Lord. He was constantly worshiping his Lord. Oh, may we be like Samuel. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy upon our life. And I pray, Lord, if we are sitting here and if we have any burdens, any, any things in our lives that are not right, that would cause us to hinder our relationship with you, may we 
confess. May, may we confess all, take full ownership of the things that are not right in our lives. Your Holy Spirit has been convicting us and we've been messing with it or pushing it back or whatever it may be. May we stop fighting and stop leaning on our understanding or stop dwelling on the past or the fear of the future. Lord, may we trust you with our lives today and the days to come. Just simply just acknowledge and trust you and live a life that is honoring and pleasing to you. And let the things that are not of you fade away. Let them go. Acknowledge they're not supposed to be in our lives. They've got to go. Those habits, those thoughts, those ways, those doings, May we just lay it all at your feet. Trust in you. And let us be reminded of the finished work on the cross that you have forgiven of all those sins. But we still, you want us to come and acknowledge and repent and acknowledge our ways and, and just, just come to you and allow your grace to blood to cover us. Bless each and every listener tonight, all those who are here present. Bless them, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.